Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and co-parents of all ages, this podcast is for you. Introducing in the center ring the amicable divorce expert, Judith Weigel. One of the most difficult things in a divorce settlement is what you do with the house. I'm going to use a pretty typical profile of a tough situation that people try and make work the best they can, and I completely understand it because it's generally to keep the children in the family home. Mom generally wants to stay there. Dad is typically okay with it, but the real challenge comes when mom wants to buy dad out at some point, assume the mortgage, and be a homeowner. And unless certain factors are in place, it becomes next to impossible. But we have a woman with us today. We have Mona El-Hawagi. Mona is a mortgage broker. She's with Forbex, and I am told that to um, adhere to compliance, we need to put her NMLS number out there next to her name, and that is 663069. Did I do okay, Mona? Oh, that was perfect. I couldn't have said it better myself. (laughs) Thank you so much. So we learn all these different things when we're interviewing people. I met Mona a few years ago, and I found her to be extremely creative. She does have a JD degree, so a law degree, not a practicing lawyer, but I found that very interesting that she went from that to eventually going into mortgage. And because of that, she's super sensitive to laws and rules and keeping everybody straight and focused. So Mona, let's do this. Let's take that typical example that I just set up. Mom wants to stay in the house with the kids. Mom is going to get child and spousal support. Let's start at that point and build the profile the way it needs to be built so mom can successfully assume the mortgage at some point. So this comes up a lot, and that is why I'm happy that you have me on on the program, on the podcast. Um, and I would like to give people just a little bit of background. Um, I mean, I've been doing this for more than 15, 15, five years and the company that I work for, we do all types of residential and commercial loans. So we, we get creative and we know that that's, uh, or at least we do our best to get creative. And we know that a lot of times that's what's needed in this situation. So basically, you know, before, um, the show you had asked, you know, for example, if somebody has a $300,000 loan, roughly, what do they need, right? Or how much do they need? If, they, if the mortgage is 300000 right, if that's what they have to um, use to get the house, what else has to happen in terms of income streams? Well, the... The, the conventional ways to get a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loan, and I'll ex- explain a little bit about that, and then I can explain a little bit about some of the niche products we have, right? So ideally, you know, the borrower would qualify just on their income. And um, yeah, they would qualify just on their income. And what the lender does is they see what are your debts. And when they see the debts, they just see how much is the mortgage, the property taxes, the insurance, 
and any monthly debt that shows up on the credit report. So they're not looking at your DWP, you know, they're not looking at a utility bill, they're not looking at daycare, they're not looking at anything like that, just the minimum payment on the credit report. So let's just assume round numbers sake, right? If the house is, if the loan is, you know, 300,000, um, with the going interest rate, and let's assume, you know, the insurance every month is roughly 100, let's assume the property taxes are prorated at 400. Altogether, that's a total monthly payment of about $1,980. Let's call it 2000 And then let's say they have a car payment of $250, but no other debt, right? Like no other student loans, nothing else. Um, altogether, that's a payment of about $2,250, right? That would be the overall debt that the lender would consider. And ideally, your income has to be twice that. So in a situation like this, it would be about 4500 Okay. That they would look to happily qualify. Now... Well, hold on. Uh, 4500 net that you take home or 4500 gross? Gross. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Gross. Um, and then one of the things that we talked about... Um, is alimony and child support. Did you want me to go over how they oh, yeah, look at yeah, that? Yeah. Please, please, because Mona, that's what uh, women look at as the mainstay. So you have two different types of women. You have women who have not worked at all during the marriage, depending on how long the marriage was. It could be a very long time or a very short time before you know, they get divorced. So they've either not worked or what I find to be fairly typical is they may work at their child's school part-time, which pays literally nothing, you know, just a little bit, and they want to stay part-time. Not very realistic, I don't think, right? Well, I mean, I, I would agree with you, but ultimately I feel that, it, you know, just depend on what the part-time income is and what their other sources of income are. So, for example... Um, if you're getting alimony or some kind of spousal support, typically the lenders want to see it continue for three years from the time of the, that they apply for the loan and it must have been received for six months. So if it's six months, I'm sorry, by the time you're applying for a loan. Yes. And it has to be consistent. So if, you know, because they're going to ask to see, you know, receipts and cancel or, you know, cancel checks. So if the payments have been made for four months and then haven't been received for two months and then received for another two months again after that, sure, you have six months, but it has to be consecutive because the lender wants to make sure that the spouse who's paying is consistent with it. Makes sense. Um, and again, yeah, and again, it has to continue for another three years. Now, I had a case once where a gal came to the office and her um, spousal support w it was a lot, but it was only continuing for two and a half years from the time that she came. But here's the thing. They could have lowered the spousal support amount and and made it three years and he would have paid the same amount 
and she would have qualified. Oh my God, that's brilliant. Yeah, but because, you know, the divorce decree was done and because we had that lower number, I looked at the numbers and I thought to myself, wow, you're getting a good amount for an extra two and a half years. You could have made less. You could have easily qualified for less. Okay. he would have paid. Mona, let me tell you something that you can do in your business because law is my business, right? So if somebody's coming to you after the divorce is final, and so everything is written in the settlement agreement that you want to look at to see what's going on with revenue streams, there's a thing called a stipulation and order. And it is... Um, a, a little document that the, hus- the, uh, the former husband, former wife can create and send to the court with the judge's signature to change any deal point in the settlement agreement. So what you can do with your clients, if you see something like that again, where, oh shoot, they're six months short, even though it's a great amount of money and this really qualifies, if it could have only been six months longer at a lesser rate, it would still qualify. Stipulation and order can solve that problem. Well, that's good. It's good to know. That's, that's good to know. I mean, I, again, it was one of those things, it was a while ago and I just looked at it and I thought, you know, it could have been a win-win for everyone because he would have paid the same amount. Exactly. So there's your say. So you can still do business if you remember that. Call me if you don't. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay, so that's cool with spousal support. Now, nobody's taxed. We're not, the recipient of spousal support is no longer taxed federally. You're only taxed statewide on spousal Mm -hmm. support now. And that's due to that tax overhaul when Trump was in office. That was one of the changes that affected the family law business. Let's go to, can we go to child support? Because, you know, if there's children, and that's the reason why mom wants to stay in the family home, more than likely she's going to be getting child support as well. It's the same idea. It has to continue for another three years. So typically what the, the um, yeah, it has to continue for another three years. And I know a lot of times it depends on the age of the kids, you know, so as long as it's con- going to continue for another three years. Yeah. So usually I see you, and I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but usually I see it continue to 18. But just so in that case, if the kids are 15, as long as it stipulates another three years, you're okay. If they're 16 or 17, it would have to say for another three years, you know, but typically that's what they, that, that's typically what they want to see is it for it to continue for that, for the other three years, the next three years and the same thing, they want to make sure they have a six month history of it. So it's consistent. Okay. And to, to look at consistency before we leave this topic, you want to see bank statements. You want to see the deposits. Right. Child and spousal support for X, six months uh, to start the conversation. Exactly. Do you monitor it? There's no monitoring after the mortgage is provided no. there. Yeah. Okay. No, now once it's now once it's funded, it's funded. They're not going to ask for conditions after the fact. Okay. All right. That sounds good. Um, so, with a three hundred thousand dollar loan, we'll use your model, which is kind of funny because you know we're in Southern California, 
And that's a nothing mortgage to us, right? That's a mortgage on a mansion to people in other states. Are we, is this, is the mortgage lending industry similar in other states than from California? These are, these are federal guidelines. These are federal Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac guidelines. Yeah. So, so that number that I told you about 50, what, whatever your um, overall debt is, meaning um, the mortgage taxes and insurance and the minimum amount on your credit report, this is nationwide. So typically lenders want to see that you make twice that. If you make more than twice that, perfect. But if you make about twice that, then you're okay. And yes, you're exactly right because there's other parts of the U.S. where you know, the mortgages are 200000 and you have a nice sized house. And don't even get me started on prices here in Southern California. <laughs> I feel like a pauper. You know, when I everybody look, does. Good God, I can't believe this is happening. And I everybody don't want, feels that way. <laughs> I don't want anybody to get hurt in a real estate crash, but a crash would really help me get back in the market. <laughs> it really would. You know, a lot of a lot of people say that. I don't know how this is sustainable. <laughs> I, I, I don't either. But and, and when I came to California in 1989 and I looked at what the rates, what, what the prices on homes were, I said, I don't understand how people can afford it at that time. And it's gotten worse. I oh, yeah. get it. And I work all the time and I don't get it. But I'm, I, I'm in the industry and I do this all day, every day, and I still don't get it. <laughs> Well, all right. Well, may, maybe the heavens will like us at some point. Get us back. <laughs> I love being a homeowner. So I, I want to come back. And I don't want a tiny house. I actually need space to walk around in. Okay, right. let's, go to the, let's go to the next portion. Mom needs to re-enter the workforce. Mom has not been working, not even part-time at the kids' school for next to poverty rates. Mom really hasn't been working. Let's talk about what you look at with re-entering the workforce uh, qualifications. So re-entering the workforce, ideally, ideally, you would be at another job for two years before you can consider it. I have lenders who will look at somebody and consider them after they've been there for one year. But typically, I mean, the the standard on the guidelines is two years and um, anything less than that is going to be a case-by-case basis. Um, I can tell you, I did have a situation where a gal... um, was out of the work for, I mean, for decades, right? And then she went back in and she was at her current employer for one year and I was able to get the loan. But with that being said, even though these are federal guidelines, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, three of the lenders that I work with said, no, you need two. And then I found the one who said yes. So I can, I can say to you, two years is safe. Anything less than that is just going to depend on the lender and the underwriting exception. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes they look at it that way. You said something that I think bears a little bit of an explanation. What, sure. what is a mortgage broker? You just referenced two lenders turned you down because uh, they wanted two years and one lender was okay with a year. What does a mortgage broker do, Mona? So if you go to 
a bank, for example, B of A, Wells Fargo, that it's their money, it's their guidelines. That's the only source that they have for the funds, for the client. I'm a broker. So we go to uh, mortgage companies and a lot of the mortgage companies that we work with don't really have a presence where the average person isn't going to know who they are. We're the only ones who know who they are. And what happens is that gives me a lot of flexibility. Um, and luckily I'm able to do a lot of turndowns from banks because the lenders that we work with, even though they're still Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac lenders, they might have quote unquote looser guidelines than the typical bank. And so that allows me to go to lender A, B, C, and D to say, this is what I have. Can we make this work? So I'm able to shop for the rate. I'm also able to shop for different loan programs. And that's what it allows me to do. This sounds like an extremely creative job. It can be. And, you know, I'll be honest with you, that's the part of it that I really like. Because, um, you know, I like hearing somebody's story and hearing what their, um, out, their desired outcome is and what their intention is and to see what it is that I have to work with to make that happen. And if it's something I can do, I can say, look, knock on wood, very grateful. I have all of these resources. But if it's something that I don't think is going to happen Anywhere, anyhow, I can say these are your issues and this is what you have to fix before anybody's going to take a look at you. And I feel that what it does, because again, we do all types of residential and commercial loans, is we can get creative with whatever it is. And that's the, and I'll be honest with you, that's the fun part for me. I can imagine. I, I really can imagine because when I was getting your emails and looking at what you were saying in each e email, highlighting something different, I kept saying, oh my gosh, this is perfect for an episode. This is so needed with people. They feel so stuck because they typically only know to go to either their existing mortgage company or wherever they bank or a credit union, something like that. But you just seem to be coming up with such interesting options and ideas. I thought, you know, we have to talk about this because this is one of the cornerstones of a divorce settlement, and it's so very important. I mean, selling the house and walking away with a lot of equity, if there's a lot of equity there, I mean, that sounds very exciting too. And then you can start fresh if you have enough equity to put down. In fact, let's, let's use this as another formula, Mona. So the decision is to sell the family home. And each person walks away with five to six hundred thousand um, dollars as their community property share. Mm -hmm. And they want to come to you. One of them wants to come to you for a three hundred thousand dollar mortgage loan when they and they just made five to six hundred thousand. How does that change when you look at mom? Mom is generally the more sensitive person in terms of the financial profile than than dad a lot of times. Well the first thing I tell people is this um as we were talking about a little early you know a little earlier um earlier 
is that our property, our, our values here are very, our property values here are very expensive. And so I tell people, if you are going to sell, where are you going? Because you have to have the money for the down payment, you have to qualify. And not only that, but the property insurance, or sorry, the property tax rate is going to increase. So the property tax, you know, I like, let's say, for example, if you, ha- you buy a $700,000 house, let's just say, your property taxes per year, I just did the, the numbers, are going to be $8,700, $8,750, right? But if they've been in the family home for decades, they might be paying $4,000 a year. So this is something I tell people, be prepared for your property tax rate to double just because everything is expensive, right? But to answer your question, I have, and this is one of the products I, that we have that I'm, I'm kind of excited about. Um, it's called asset depletion. And what that means is the lender sees how much you have in liquid assets, and that could be money in a bank account. Um, it could be stocks, it could be bonds, it could be, you know, a CD, it could be whatever it is. And they take that amount. And I'm just going to use one of the formulas that one of our most aggressive lenders use because different lenders have a different formula. They'll take that and they'll divide it by 84 months. And in this scenario, if I have 600,000 divided by 84 months, that equates to income of roughly 7,100. A month. You have to have 7,100 a month. Yeah. So is, yeah, exactly. Exactly. 7,100 a month. So as long as then your mortgage taxes, insurance, minimum payment on your, on your credit cards, et cetera, and car payment is less than about 70, sorry, 3,500, you can qualify. So you have to back into the number, right? But then again, with that is how much do you, are you going to put down as a down payment, right? Because of the 600, a certain amount is going to be a down payment. So if somebody has questions, if they want to reach out to me, I'd be more than happy to go through the numbers. I just wanted to give you an idea. And that this way of qualifying asset depletion, it's been able to save a lot of loans for us. You know, like I had a gal once and she got $2 million of stock. Never worked. Um, but the $2 million of stock was, was more than enough to qualify her. She didn't have to liquidate. She didn't have to do anything. She just had to show me the statements with the stock in there, the portfolio for two months. Um, here's your approval. We're done. Okay, Got to stay so in the house. If her big asset was $2 million in stocks, she obviously had to take some of that money to use as a down payment, right? She stayed in the family home. So we just refinanced and that was enough for the refinance. Ah, okay. All right, that's cool. Yeah, I don't remember what the, I think they had another property and the husband got that. Anyhow, there's, I I forgot what it was, but I know that that was more than, more than enough to qualify her. Okay. Um, I want to go back to mom. We already talked about mom re-entering the workforce. You'd like to see a minimum of two years of employment. Um, ideally before a loan is provided or a refinance is provided. Um, what if mom has been working part-time for a couple years? 
now, when I've seen you, yeah, two years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's two years. But here's one thing I want to sort of put out there. I think that everything is worth a conversation because in the conversation where is where I do the fact finding is when I'll say, do you own other rental property? Do you have other, you know, money coming from other places? What are your assets like? Do you have a side business? You know, if, if they have a side business and they have money coming in um, on with bank statements, many instances I could use that. So I feel that it's always worth a conversation and the fact finding to see what will work. Okay, now I have a tough question for you. Sure, sure. Because unfortunately, this does happen. When you said side business, what I see a lot is maybe they do have a side business, all cash, never reported to the government. Right. Now, what do you do? And what, now, what do you do as a loan, as a mortgage broker, when somebody says this to you? Well, I actually do have this other income stream, but I can't really show it to you on paper because um, we don't declare it. There's two, um, I'm glad you brought that up. And this comes to the niche products. And there's two options. One option is we can show um, 12 months of bank statements. The lenders we work with are getting very um, generous, we'll call it, in whether they use personal or business. I have many lenders that will use one or the other, if not both. Um, and then they, 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 everybody has their own little way of looking at it. Some of them will look at deposits. Some of them will look at the end balance. Some of them will look at the combination of both. But that's a way to get it done, possibly. The other one, and this is unique, this is, this is actually very unique. Um, we actually have a product where you can do true stated income, meaning I leave the income blank and I leave the job blank. And we can do that up to, I forgot what it was. I think you need 20 or 30% equity, something like that. I actually have a loan I'm working on right now for a gal and um, yeah, her taxes really don't show anything, but she's not going through a divorce. They just don't show anything. Um, but there's equity in the property and we're doing a loan for her for a little more than 900000 Okay, so circle back. What do you mean by 20% equity in this what I, story? What I mean is, let's say the house is worth a million the loan amount would be 800,000 and then the 20% of the 200 would be considered 20% equity. What does the person want to do? Buy the house outright or refinance? What are we talking about? She's just, she's just refinancing. Okay, this is a refinance situation. This is a refi, yeah. Okay. So yeah. Say, please say it one more time. If, if I need to hear it one more time, I'm sure some other people sure. need to hear it one more time. So we, so we have another product and it's a pure stated income product, right? Meaning actually what I do is I leave the income blank and I leave the job blank. So they don't need to know if you're self-employed, if you work with somebody else, all of that is blank. They don't, they don't need to know how long you've been working, that whole section is left blank on the mortgage application. Okay. And what the lenders look at is as long as you have a certain amount of equity, they will give you a loan 
without anything, but you do have to have a certain amount of money in the bank. And that money is going to depend on what your monthly um, mortgage taxes and insurance are for the house. So we have a couple of different lenders who do it. They have roughly different, you know, guidelines with that, but that's a way if somebody has some equity and if they have some money in the bank, they can get a loan that way. But, but for me, I'll be honest with you, I'm very careful because I don't want to put anybody in a loan that they cannot afford. And I know that people have money from the side. They might have money from the family member from overseas that comes consistently. I, you know, maybe they'll rent rooms out, whatever it is. But I always ask people, if I give you this loan, can you make the payment? Okay, you just said something else I didn't think about until just now, and it happens. You have enough bedrooms in the house that you can rent a room, a room at least. How does, does, that, does that equate to an income stream for you to consider? That, I'll be honest with you, there's... I've, I'll be honest with you, I forgot what the guideline was because I remember the last time I looked up the guideline, it had something to do, it was something funky and I looked at it and I said, I've never seen anybody that falls under that. Yeah. <laughs> and I just kind of dismissed it. So technically, can it happen? Yes. What are the guidelines and requirements around it? I, I can't tell you because I don't remember what they are. <laughs> okay, well, that's honest because I don't remember everything either. So that's very honest. But so this, <laughs> this is another part of the conversation. Um, when I'm in a mediation with people and we're trying to pencil out how mom can stay in the home. And one of the ways mom can stay in the home uh, and pay the mortgage is by renting a room out. Yeah, I'll be honest with you. When when I read the guidelines for it, like I said, I looked at it and I said, no one's going to qualify. Like no one's going to show the lender what they need for this. Okay. So I, it was it was just such an out there thing that they needed. So is it a possibility? Yes. Have I ever done a loan in all my years where one person has ever qualified for it? No. But the one thing I can tell you that I'm seeing a lot more of is is um, ADUs, accessory dwelling units that everybody in LA is building on their properties. Like you refurbish the top of the garage and make it an apartment, right. something like that. Yeah. Or turn, or wait yeah. on it, turn tough shed in your backyard into a <laughs> dwelling somehow. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. And so I'm seeing, I'm, I'm seeing that. And again, I, I don't remember off the guideline, the guideline off the top of my head, because I'm not going to make anything up. <laughs> you know, if I don't know something, I'll tell you. And if yeah, because you have to more. protect that MLS something. Yes, else. exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but I want to say that's easier to qualify. And the reason why is because when we do an appraisal, the appraiser can say, oh, these ADUs, accessory dwelling unit, can rent for $1,500 a month. So we have a basis for it. And that's why I think those are, it's, it's easier to qualify for that. But again, that's why everything is worth a conversation because you never know what you're going to unveil in the fact finding. And that's 
And, and that's the fun part for me. And I think it's because I spent the time in law school, right? Because in law school, what do you do? You, you, you know, you read the fact pattern, you fat, you know, you fact fine. And that becomes the fun part of it. And I know it sounds strange, <laughs> but I like hearing people's stories and see how to get something to work for them. Uh, no, I can totally appreciate how you feel because even in mediation, I know that there's the law, which is the framework within which decisions are made, but then there's the, there's the story of the marriage that's really going to come into play when they go to make decisions about the settlement. It's going to be a little bit of emotional justice seeking. It's going to be, I stayed home and raised the kids so that you could get education, so that you could move up in the world. And so this is what I want. I mean, there, there, it, it's really interesting to listen to how people make decisions for their lives. And then you actually feel better about yourself sometimes because sometimes people make crazy decisions and you, you sit there and you're like, huh, I wonder what that's emotional. Like. It's, it's a, yeah, because it's ahead. emotional. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it is a very, we both have very interesting jobs. Okay. It's certainly emotional. So here's something else that comes up. So, Dad says, okay, fine, Mom. I, I'm fine having you stay in the house. I agree with you. I don't want to disrupt the children's lives, at least for right now. I'll give them a few years, if they're young children, to get used to the divorce, to get used to two households. But we do need to plan on when you are going to. I can't hear you. Uh-oh. You can't hear me? Really? I, and nothing has changed with me. I can hear you now. Okay, great. Because the little little sign came up, unstable internet connection. You were just labeled unstable, Mona. So, <laughs> I'm glad you've got stable again. Dad, of course, wants some type of forecast. When can I expect that you will refinance? Well, you di you did give us a time frame. You right. said a window of two years is the appropriate time frame if you're re-entering the job market, if you're going from part-time to full-time. So at least we have that now, right? Mm -hmm. But in the interim, while we're putting these dates together for the settlement agreement, um, dad wants to, they think that leaving the title is appropriate while the mortgage can't change because dad's the only one that has qualified. So yeah. let's talk about the difference between leaving title, leaving mortgage, and for the protection of everybody, what's the best way that that should take place? This is really important because I've spoken to some people and they assume I'm not saying this is everybody. I'm just saying I've had conversations with people who just assume this and it's absolutely wrong. That if they take themselves off of title, they are no longer obligated on the loan. Because how can the lender come to me and ask me for payment if I'm not on title? Lender doesn't care. One more time. They do not care. 
if you sign on a mortgage, and this is what people have to remember, a mortgage is a contract. The contract says, I owe you lender three, you know, $300,000 at this percentage rate for the next 30 years every single month. They don't care what is happening in your life. They don't care what's happening to whether or not, you know, you took yourself off the title. You obligated yourself to the debt. So you have to pay it, period, end of discussion. Now, and the other thing that I tell people is that being on title is what gives you all the fun things to the property. Being on title is what tells the world, I own this and I can buy, I can, I can sell it, I can refinance it, I can, I can convey it to somebody else. I'm the one who owns this property. The loan, all it does is say, I obligate myself on a debt. You don't have anything fun that way, right? So, you know, so for example, I, this is a long time ago and they were not married. They were, they were business partners, right? And they were both on title, but only one was on the loan. And the guy on title was initially making the payments contributing. And then one day he decided he didn't want to do it. The but gentleman the other guy, that was only on title, not on the loan. Yeah. And he said, all right, I'm not going to make any payments. And then the other guy had to make all the payments because he's obligated, right? So I tell people, you, if you are on the loan, you have to remain on title to be safe, okay? Um, but then what I have seen, not a lot, but here and there, is let's say it comes time to do the buyout, right? Husband doesn't trust the wife because of all of the emotional issues. If I take myself off... Mona's cutting out. Hold on, Um, he's a suspicious person. So the best you actually cut out for about five seconds. Ah, start. Okay, what I was gonna. So I tell people to stay on the loan if they're going to be on the loan. You have to be on title to protect yourself, right? Um, But what I have seen a couple of times is, let's say the wife is buying out the husband, and the husband, and exactly like we were talking before, um, because of emotional reasons, doesn't trust the wife. If I, if I take myself off, how do I know you're going to refi? How, is I, how am I going to know it's only in your name? So I'm going to get the money, right? right? The funds needed to buy me out. Well, the easiest solution is I tell people it's all done through escrow. And can you hear me? What's done through mm-hmm. escrow? What's done through escrow, Mona? I can't hear you while well, you're cutting out again. And it's not even windy here in Los Angeles. But I'm going to finish what Mona was saying because this comes up all the time in mediation, and I'm sure she's going to be back in, in a second or two. But when, when one person takes themselves off title and they are also on the loan, if anything happens to mom living in the house and not even her fault. I, I'm finishing what you were going to say because you cut out for a while, Mona. Okay. And, and it's not even mom's fault that maybe something happens. I mean, worst case, mom passes away. Um, best case, mom becomes ill and cannot fulfill the mortgage payments. If you are off title, dad, you owe those mortgage payments and you if- do not have 
the benefit of home ownership anymore. So staying on title does two things while mom is trying to build up equity, build up credit, build up money and, and, and move into refinancing herself. By staying on title, you not only protect yourself if you have to jump in and help financially to pay the loan, or if mom passes away, you still own the property, even though in the settlement agreement, a hundred percent for the divorce, you know, all of this process was listed when you will leave the loan, uh, leave title. Um, you have to remember that you will always be obligated to pay the mortgage if something happens. And if you're not on title, you don't get that asset. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, yeah, because technically you're not telling the world that you have any rights to the property. So it's, it's important that they, that if they're on the mortgage, that they, that they stay on title. But what I was, what I was starting to say before I, I think it froze up is that what happens is during the buyout process, during the loan process, we open up escrow and the escrow can draft all of the uh, deeds to take the one spouse off of title and make sure that if it's a buyout, then, then the out spouse gets the proceeds. They are a neutral third party and they will make sure that everything is adhered to and all the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. So if the out spouse is concerned... Okay, well, let's not use out spouse. I know people do that in the law business. Okay. It, 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 it's what does that mean? Who are you referring to when you say that? The spouse that's no longer going to be living in the house. That's not in the house, that's giving the house up and just wants their equity share. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's done through escrow. Very neutral third party. They're the ones who take care of the deed transfers and to make sure that the spouse who's no longer going to stay in, in the house gets paid you know, that the new loan is done and recorded. They're the ones who take care of all of that. And I feel like that for some people, for, you know, couples who are divorcing, they, they like knowing that there's a neutral third party to take care of all that. Right. And um, just to say it a slightly different way, because I know where the fear levels of people lie when they're making their settlement uh, settlement negotiations is, well, how do I know that I'm really going to get all of my money, especially if it was a distrustful marriage? And so what you said is so perfect because um, there can be two checks written in escrow. One check is directly written to the person who is being bought out so that uh, mom doesn't have to write that check. The escrow people... um, can write that check. And then if mom's taking any cash out, I guess there'll be a separate check for her. And they can call the escrow company. Hey, this is what's going on. I just want to make sure that you're going to have a check with my name written on it with X amount of dollars through this transaction. Yes, because when I was selling a house, when I was living in Palm Springs some years ago, and uh, the first house that I was going to sell, I did need some repair work done. And uh, one of the contractors for the repair work said, you actually don't have to pay me now. I'll just go ahead and list me in escrow. We'll just list me as a lien and I'll be one of the first people that gets paid. So for people 
who do need to do some work, maybe even selling their house and want to reinvest in something new, um, you may not have the funds. Maybe you're just stuck right now while you're getting divorced and you do need to contract for some repair work. Escrow can pay them out of the equity when you're, um, uh, when everybody's collecting their money from selling a house. Correct, Mona? That's... They, they can, they, yeah, they can. The only thing that, the only sort of caveat, sort of beware part that I would throw out there is that you really don't want the lender to know that you're doing a lot of work because then they they might say, well, wait a minute, did we miss something when the appraisal came back? Like, did you need a new roof and we didn't know about it? No, oh, no, no. I think you know? I'm referring to after the appraisal is done and you know you have to do some work, maybe there's some code things, always with water heaters and stuff like that. There are codes that you have to meet in order to sell the house. And then you have to call somebody. It is, but no? usually if there's something that needs to be repaired, a lot of times the lender needs uh, somebody else to go out there to make sure that the work was already done. If they say that you need to do A, B, C, and D, then they'll say, okay, well, you, you know, we, we need to prove that it was done. And then it's, a, it's another process or, you know, another bit of paperwork that we have to furnish. Uh, but yeah, you could, you could do it that way. But like I said, depending on what needs to be fixed, the lender is going to require proof of it. I would assume so. I would assume so. So thank you for mentioning that. That's important. I just wanted people yeah. to know that one of the stumbling blocks when they go to sell a home is, oh, shoot, we have to improve some things here. Or Mona, what if they just want to finish something that was started that would add value to the home and it's a little pricey, um, they can still have that contractor get paid out of escrow, um, you know, with all the monies available to pay the two spouses. I, I'll be honest with you. I hesitate paying contractors out of out of escrow only because I think it's going to raise so many red flags with the underwriter. And that's the last thing that you want, especially, you know, oh, yeah. Wait a minute. Going forward, that would be a red flag so that if you wanted to buy your next house, why couldn't you afford to make that improvement? No, last house? no. No, 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 no. What I mean is, what I mean is, let's say, for example, the lender sees, oh, you're, wait, hold on, let me make sure I understand the, the scenario you're talking about. So there's a current house that both spouses own, and they want, and perhaps there's a buyout, and they have in there to pay the contractor $25,000. I'm talking about if both spouses say, you know what, let's sell this house, let's each get ourselves something new. But in order to sell the house, either through the appraisal process, they were told that there's some work that needs to be done at the very least to bring the house up to code in some instances, or there just may be some work that needs to be done, bathrooms and kitchens, you know, the, 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 the biggest areas of the house that have value right? When you're looking yeah, yeah. at the house, those are two important areas to look, that people look at. Well, maybe right. you don't really have the accessible cash right now um, uh, to, to do those improvements, but you know you need to get them done. That's what I was saying. Well, then 
can the contractor can be paid out of escrow. And I thought you were saying that raises red flags possibly going forward when they want to buy their new house. No, I what I th- no, then I misunderstood. I thought you meant that if the current house needs to get some work done, can you pay the contractor out of escrow? In which I would say that might raise red flags to the lender. But if they're just going to give the money to a contractor, you mean to fit, to buy the, to buy a, to help them fix the new place? To help them fix the place they're selling so it can sell for a bigger price. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I wouldn't recommend it. You still wouldn't recommend it. Okay. No, I wouldn't. No, 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 I wouldn't because, because, no, I, for me, I wouldn't because I just, I've been doing this long enough where I know certain things could go sideways and alone. And that's just not one of the things that I would recommend to somebody. Okay. All right. Good enough, Mona. Good enough. I want to tackle one more aspect of selling a home, refinancing a home during a divorce. And this is really tricky because this came out of the mortgage debacle in 2008, where mm-hmm. every, most people's lives were upended for a certain period of time. And going into 2009, I mean, people still had to sell homes, people still had to live. What I saw some people talking about in the mortgage industry were these loan assumptions where the loan itself wasn't going to change. The person who wanted to stay in the home um, was going to assume the loan and really didn't qualify for the loan. Either hasn't been working, part-time work that was just at minimum wage level, uh, but yet uh, one person, dad wants to move out, mom wants to stay there. So I started listening to people talk about loan assumption. Well, we'll just, the attorneys started getting involved. So, okay, if there's this thing called a loan assumption, meaning you just assume the loan, it's fine. Um, regardless of what you're making, you'll make, you'll make the payments happen. Um, the lawyers representing mom, so to speak, and dad, were trying to put in language that would protect dad, the person leaving, from being financially liable if mom wasn't able to pay the loan regularly each month. And I would sit there and say, well, wait a minute. Is anybody consulting the mortgage company to see if they're okay with this decision? And of course not. Mm-hmm. And so I would go, I went to a couple family law seminars where the judges said, lawyers, stop doing that. You are mm-hmm. obligating, so to speak, a mortgage company without their consent, and it's not going to hold up in court. Right. So can you speak to that? Did you see that at all? Do you know what I'm talking about? Okay, so she froze up again. I think she can you has hear me. Now I can. Now I can't. So this was a big deal. She'll come back on. This was a really can you big hear me? deal. Now I can. You keep cutting in and out. 
But this was a really big deal in 2009, even in 2010, because oh, that crisis... Sorry, I'm, I'm back. Can you, can you hear me? Yeah, I can now. Yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry on my end. I'm I'm set up to Wi-Fi and I have all the bars, so I don't know what's going on. I apologize if it's on my end. Well, um, but, Go ahead. <laughs> but um, so let me let me see if I understand this. Um, hus- because part of it broke up. Husband and wife are on the loan, and what happens if one of the spouses can't make the mortgage, even though through the settlement? they're the ones who have to make all of the payments, all the mortgage payments. Right. On paper, on the settlement agreement, uh, one spouse is assuming the loan and protecting, and I put those, I put air quotes around the word protecting, the spouse who's moving out from having any liability if the one who's staying in the house is not able to pay the loan. Well, I'll start off by saying, um, I, I do zero mortgage assumption situations. So people come to me when they're getting a brand new loan. Um, so I could speak to that. But a mortgage assumption is, I mean, and again, from what I've heard about it, because you probably have seen it more on your end than me, is where you go out to the existing lender and say, hey, um, only one of us are going to stay on the loan. Are you okay with it? And then you proceed with the proper paperwork, right? You are right. Um, what happens in that? What happens in that situation after the fact? I mean, like I said, I do zero mortgage assumptions. People come to me for brand new loans, so I can't speak to that. But I would say that with anything, you you just have to... If, this is the only thing I can come away with, that that if somebody's going to come away with, that they they would need to, to keep in mind. If a lender has you obligated on a debt, and if that debt payment is not made, they are going to report you to the credit agencies as being late. They don't care what court document, and they don't know about any court document that says the other person or somebody else has to pay it. All they know is, is, you know, Joe Smith, Jane Smith, you're both on the loan. Both of you have to make payments. If the court says that only one of you are obligated and that person who's obligated isn't making the payment, but that other person's still attached to the debt, the creditor doesn't care. They're going to go to the credit agencies and they're going to say, blanket, you know, here you go, it's late, you know, it's late and they're not going to care. And all I can say from that is good luck trying to call them and show them your divorce decree and tell them because I don't think they're going to care at that point. Excellent. Now I just need to put that to bed. Yeah, they're yeah, yeah. They're 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 not gonna care because a lot because all this is automated, right? You know, this is the account number, these are the names attached, you know, you're more than 30 days late, because usually it's more than 30 days. We're gonna report you to all of the agencies. That's it. Yeah. You know, one thing I'm surprised about that you said that is still ongoing from 2008, and that's stated income. Wasn't that one of the things that got the whole mortgage industry in trouble where there were stated income loans? There was no research done, no tax returns provided, no paperwork provided to support that whatever you put your income down on as on the loan is verifiable. So I'm quite surprised that stated income is is still around. 
Um, it went away for a long time. And before, because I was in the industry at that time, everybody was doing stated income, right? And you could buy a house for $500,000 because at that time you could buy a nice house for $500,000, right? When we talk about the property values and you could put zero money down, not show you had anything in the bank and here's your loan. And so um, that went away for a very, very, very long time. And now, um, you have more, technically they're called um, non-QM or non-qualified mortgage loans come out, which I just call niche loans, just to make life simple. Sort of like the outside of the box loans and not too many lenders do it. Like I said, we have two lenders that do it. And um, if I have to be very technical and kind of like protect myself, it's they don't call it stated income. They call it a no ratio loan where they don't really look at how much income you make. That's what they call it, no ratio. And very few lenders do it. We have a couple who do it, but the guidelines are very different. They're very, very different. And I shouldn't say stated income because I'm not stating anything. Everything is absolutely left blank. But you know how I said earlier where they do the ratio of what your debts are to how much you make? Because everything is left blank, there's no formula because the income is zero. You know, the income is blank. So technically, that's why they call it a no ratio loan because there's no math for them to perform. But um, very few lenders do it, but they're doing it in a very different way because before you didn't have to put any money down. If you refinanced, you didn't need much equity, right? right. Now they want to see equity. They want to see that you have money in the bank. Like I said, they have their formula where they take how much the, the, state, the, the mortgage taxes and insurance, and then you have to have a certain amount of that in the bank. Right. So it looks very different than it did before. And um, yeah, the way they do it today, I'm not as concerned as I was in 06. Yes. I'm not. The way they do it right now, it's so conservative compared to before. So if you go the route of not having to provide your income, you still have to provide some financial information to show that you have something. They want to say, make sure that you have a certain amount of money in the bank to, sh- to pay, you know, the mortgage for a certain amount of months, you know, and for some lenders, it's six months, for some lenders, it's 12 months, depending on the loan amount, it could be 18 months, you know what I mean? It just depends. So yeah, you have to show something. Um, and like I said, it's, it's very different than it was before. But one of the things that I do want to touch upon that a lot of people don't know is that if you have an investment property, right? Meaning if you own a duplex or four units or five units or an apartment building, in many cases, you can get financing for that without showing your own tax returns. Because we have lenders that will look at only the income from the rental property. So for example, I had a gal and she inherited, or she, well, she got through the settlement four units. She had zero income, was out of the job market forever. And because the rents received covered the mortgage, the taxes and insurance with some money left over, because that's how their formula is, I was able to get her a loan, no tax returns. But again, in that situation, they heavily, they heavily look at and vet the rental income 
so, and the appraisal has to say, yes, the rental income market rent is this amount. We have to show the leases. Um, in some cases you have to. And then we also had to show for her that she had a certain amount of money in the bank to make, you know, to make the mortgage payments. Um, but that's, a, you know, that's an option that people come to me all the time and they don't even know that that loan exists, but luckily it does. You have been wonderful, Mona. So creative. I just love it. When you, Thank you. seriously, very creative. I love all your emails when you send them to me. <laughs> Thank you. Best way when we have a situation where mom's going to stay in the house, dad's going to leave, and mom can't really do anything for a couple of years. Do you like meeting with both mom and dad um, in this interim process to, to get them both set up for how they should prepare for the future for that point when mom can um, assume the loan, refinance for the mortgage? Or does um, it matter? Or does it not matter? I don't know. I, I'll be honest with you. For me, I don't know what matters. Because if the spouse who wants to keep the house can tell me what their financial background is and what the settlement agreement or the divorce decree is going to be, you know, it, it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't really make a difference. But, okay. but sometimes, you know, they'll say, oh, I want you to talk to the other spouse. And sometimes it's fine and sometimes they yell at each other and nothing happens. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> they even do it in your office? That's too funny. <laughs> yeah, you know. So <laughs> I'm glad to know that. <laughs> yeah, it could, yeah, it could I go know. either way. <laughs> I know, I know. Oh, Mona, this has been really great. I mean, an hour went by so quickly. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the value of all of your, your information and your creativity. Well, your information is going to be in the show notes, but for those who are listening right now, best way to get in touch with you. So I work at a company called Forbix, and we're in Calabasas. And um, my email, am I allowed to say my email on that? Is that, does oh, that yeah, work? Yeah, anything you oh. want. All right, cool. My email is Mona, M-O-N-A, at Forbix, F like Frank, O, R like Robert, B like boy, I-X. And my cell number is 818-822-5550. Again, 818-822-5550. And I'm completely fine with people giving me a call or emailing me. Um, if you email me and I don't get back to you, it means I didn't get it. So follow up with a phone call because I get back to everybody. It's important uh, for me that I do that. <laughs> Excellent. This has been great. So informative. Thank you so much. This is really going to help me when I'm mediating too to know some things that I really did not know before. So, so beneficial to me as well. And I want to thank you. Thank you for, for inviting me. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being interested in the topic. You know, I, I really appreciate it. Absolutely. No, this was great. And I, and I remember when I met you and I, I found you a wealth of information, found you to be a wealth of information. So I'm glad we could finally make this happen. Thank and you. And to everybody listening, thank you as well. You know, I appreciate each and every one of you. And I, 
I, I know this had to have been helpful to many of you listening because this is one of the biggest issues in a divorce settlement. You can reach me through my email, Judith at theamicabledivorceexpert.com. Judith at theamicabledivorceexpert.com. And as always, have an amicable day. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. Be good to yourselves. Be kind to your spouse and cherish your children above all else.